This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Locking Horns The sun has made its way high in the sky before I venture beyond my tent. Looking around, I find Grandfather sitting alone. With his back to me, he is looking out over the valley. A blanket covers his lap. The valley's not deep, but the cliff is high enough for one to see for several miles. This was once the land of huge dinosaurs. Their footprints and bones still dot the landscape. There is a deep footprint here in the rock at the cliff's edge, and Grandfather's butt is cradled in its big center toe. At one point, a large creature stood here, on this very spot, looking out over the same valley. I wonder what they saw. Was it a desert even back then? Or was it more of a swampy wasteland that I envisioned their world being? Grandfather hears me approaching and, without turning, pats the ground next to him, inviting me to join him. Taking a seat inside the toe next to him, I let my bare heels dangle over the edge and tap on the rock face below. There is no evidence of the mist from the night before. The multicolored dirt cliffs are majestic. They rise high above the valley and a small river meanders below, unobstructed. Its easy flow gives off an energy of life in slow motion. The faint smell of campfire still dances on the air and my mind is pulled back to the events of the night before. The autumn chill prickles my skin and I look like a plucked chicken. I rub my arms to warm them up. How did you sleep? He asks, not taking his eyes from the view. Like a stone. Did you find the answers you seek? Yes and no. You still are confused. I have always known the right thing to do. I just don't know if I have the courage to do it. If I write letters to officials detailing the risk the boys present to the public, if I contact the Labour Board about the staffing issues that can add up to that risk, if I rock the boat, I will lose my job. If I lose my job, my world will turn upside down. I have responsibilities. I work three jobs. But the ranch is 70% of my income. CJ and I could become homeless. I say. Grandfather lets out one small grunt, but says no more. My heart tells me I love Corey, but he obviously doesn't feel the same about me. His actions scream it loud and clear, yet I hang on, hoping he will somehow magically change his mind. I don't know how to explain it. One day my whole outlook changed. I almost feel like I'm in love with the feeling of being in love. I don't want that to end. I really like it, I say, leaning back on my hands and tipping my head up to the sun. Hoot, are you in battle with others or yourself? I guess I am still confused. I don't know who I am fighting. I am alone. 
although for the first time since I returned from the Great Hall of Records, I felt God with me last night. He was not the distant God outside of me, not the God I have begged and prayed would someday notice me and grant me a blessing upon me. Instead, I found the God that loves, supports, and experiences with me. Those few fleeting moments were honest, and for one second, I felt him there with me without expectation. I felt that he was experiencing all I am experiencing. I hope to come to know that God better, because I think we could become friends, I say, sitting up and giving myself a little hug to ward off a damp breeze that has snuck up, blowing away what little warmth I had. Pointing down and slightly to the right, Grandfather brings my attention to a rather macabre statue of death that lies about ten feet from the river. I see the bodies of two huge bull elk lying lifeless near the river's edge. The story is written in the scene. The two Goliaths square off. Eyes focus on the other. Nostrils flare and puffs of steam and snot fill the air as they bend their heads. The clash of their huge antlers is heard for miles around, echoing through the canyon. The older of the two brings experience, while the younger brings the strength of youth. One hard jerk at just the right angle breaks the neck of the old bull, and he falls dead, pinning the younger in a lifeless eye-to-eye gaze. The young bull tries with all his might to unlock his horns from the dead elder, but it's of no use. After hours of struggle, his energy spent, the younger elk falls next to his foe. Trapped in death's embrace, suffering and exhausted, he dies of dehydration. While a cool river runs only feet from him, singing its mocking song. When you are looking to lock horns with someone, you must understand your foe. Often, the fight can cost more than the expected, when you are the only opponent. The fight you speak of are not ones you can win if you are fighting yourself. You must pick a side and hope you don't break your neck in the process. Only you can know what battles to take up and which ones to lay down. You are very brave, Hoot. Never doubt your courage, and you will never be alone if you are willing to let spirit in, he says. I don't feel brave. I feel tired. You're cold, Grandfather says, pulling the blanket from his legs and wrapping it around my shoulders. Taking a corner in my left hand, I pull it over his back, draping it around him to cocoon both of us in its warm embrace. I pull him close and take in all the beauty. God really outdid himself with this one. It's a true masterpiece. If I could just sit here in this moment forever, I would be content in the land of the dinosaurs and dead gladiators.
everyone, it's Valerie here. Today's guest is Rona Lafay, also known as Hoot. She shares the behind-the-scenes stories about her book that yours truly narrated. This book is full of murder and forgiveness, is full of love and hate, along with healing, all from her near-death experience. It's a memoir. Enjoy this episode, and London also sits with Rana and asks questions about spirits and ghosts, about Rana's book, and London's own experiences. So stay tuned, and you'll never guess whose house Rana was married in. And you'll get a sneak peek into Chapter 1 in its entirety at the end of the episode. So stick around. Welcome back to Valerie's Variety Podcast with your host, me, Valerie Moss. This show is about eating, reading, and creating. How these three things influence us every day and the people that make this happen. Isn't it you or me or our friends? Maybe the next time you're thinking about a lost friend or relative, you'll see something that makes you take pause, like out of the corner of your eye. According to Rana, that is not by accident. It's on purpose. My name is Rana Lefebvre, better known as Hoot, and I'm in Washington State in a little town called Silver Lake. Right. Well, thank you for coming tonight. You're welcome. So my guest today is Rana LaFay Thapa, also known as Hoot. She was raised on a small farm in central Utah in the United States. She is a shaman and a spiritual leader, wherein she has written books, journals, and conducted retreats to help people find their dreams, guiding them to see the gratitude and feel the adventure on this journey we call life. It is her goal to create an environment of not only surviving, but to begin thriving, as life is an adventure. She signs everything in closing as, have a magical day. I was so fortunate to be chosen to produce her audiobook called The Education of Hoot, A Spiritual Journey. And in Rana's words, we were meant to meet and be connected. I hope you feel the magic in today's interview with Rana in our conversations. Welcome to the show, Rana. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. So I always like interviewing authors that I read for because... They kind of give me an insight into their book that maybe I missed or there was part of a story that didn't come through. So first off, describe the cover of your book and how did this design come to be? Well, actually, I seen the book in my near-death experience. So I had a vision in my mind of exactly what I wanted at, I guess, the 
sadness of the book cover people because I was really driving them crazy, wanting it exactly. The first time they did it, I said, I want an owl that kind of looks dazed and confused, like it's just came out of, you know, quite a journey. And they sent me something with drool coming out of my beak and everything. I look like a drunken bird. And I said, not really, that's not what I want. And then they kind of pieced it together. And that by the time three months and working on it daily, I think they kind of got angry, but they were sending me the back cover where it's got the little blown up bird with his little bare butt. And they thought it'd be funny by sticking a feather in its butt. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But actually, I liked it. And so, you know, I'm like, you got it. That's it. And they couldn't believe that that's really what I wanted. But it just made it me. You know, it's just like, yeah, you get blown up and you get feathers in your butt. (laughs) It is super cute. And I had come upon the cover of your book through this online application that we worked with in several times and I kept pondering about your book and then the very first time when I downloaded the audition I was like I'm in this is totally a book I want to produce and be part of so it has a very cute cover on it that's for sure I'm just going to read the back of it for our listeners to get an idea of what the book is about After having a near-death experience that sends Rana LaFay into a tailspin of rejection and anger, she is forced to deal with murder and forgiveness. Feeling lost and alone, she meets a mysterious old Native American. She calls him Grandfather. Grandfather takes Rana LaFay under his wing, under his tutelage. She soars and becomes who she is meant to be, a shaman and spiritual leader, given the name Hoot. In this inspiring book, Hoot shares how you, without a near-death experience, can unlock the wisdom we each possess for discovering who we are, and how we can get the most out of the joys and struggles of this life. The book is also simply a spellbinding read about one person's glimpse into what may be our destiny as spiritual beings. All right, here we get into it. So who influenced your writing? How did this idea come to be? I know you had forethought or had sight of it in your near-death experience, but when you came back and you went through all your life trials and figuring things out, what inspired you to get down and do the writing? Was it somebody or something? I had never been much of a writer, actually. I had loved art, but I had never done any kind of writing. And um, when I returned from my near-death experience, I started to do a lot of journaling. Hmm. And I would have these visions of exactly what had happened. Sorry. Um, There's one question that I forgot. What is it? Is Tammy here? Oh, London would like to know if you can feel Tammy, her little hamster spirit around us. All the time. All the time. All the time he comes to visit. Okay, go please, because we're in the middle of this now. Okay, close the door. 
She's so cute. I love her. So I started writing the journals um, as Mm. a way of almost coping. It became almost the way that I could psychologically, you know, chop it all up and really analyze it of what had happened. I could visualize every detail to the point that it was taking over my life. And so as I would journal, it was almost as if I got it on the page, then I didn't have to think about it anymore. It was like it was protected somehow, that it was out there and that I could then move on. So I was an avid reader, but I got dyslexia. And so writing and stuff was difficult for me. Um, And when I went to college, I did take some writing courses, and I really liked that. And so my stories in my journal became more of almost like a script of what had happened. Um, What you see in the book is pretty much my journal pages. Um, Okay. When did you start writing in your journal? The moment that I got home from the event. Oh, wow. Okay. And I wrote them all out for, it took a few years to get them all exactly how they work. But to tell the truth, I've never read that book all the way through. (laughs) And I never heard it all the way through till I listened to your recording. Um, When I sent it to the editor, I sent it chapter by chapter. And um, I said, don't change anything. Because I'm such a control freak, I think. Um, and I was, and that's one reason I didn't go to a, a regular, you know, publisher. publishing house and get it that way was because I wanted control. And I was so worried that they would change stuff. Hmm. So I haven't changed any. And I told them not to change anything. They basically just did the um, proofreading. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so long is because I didn't kill my darlings, as they say. <laughs> yeah. So is this the order that I narrated in was the original order? Yes. Wow. Interesting. Because um, how Rana's book is laid out is literally chapter by chapter. And the number and the chapters aren't even numbered. They're more, however, the memories have come as well as how you journaled them down then. Right. And, and that is how, you know, I remembered it. Now there is some I left out because I couldn't Mm. remember bits and pieces of it. I only put in the the parts that I really remembered. Um, And apparently those were the ones I was supposed to remember because they were so detailed and so clear. Um, But since I have written the book and published the book, they're starting to fade. I'm not, it's not nearly as clear as it was before. Do you think that's because you don't have to remember it anymore now that it's? Yes, I think that it's because my job is done. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I don't know if it'll be one person that reads it or many, but I did see many people reading it, but I don't know how long that time was, Um, you know, so it is done as it's meant to be. And it will hit the people that it's meant to hit. And how old were you when you had your near-death experience? I was 35. 35. And then you wrote the book 20 years later. Yes. Approximately. 
My name is Rana LaFay Thapa, better known as Hoot, and you can find me at PsychicRonaLaFay.com. So give us, give us the background on your grandmother and how she molded you in becoming who you were and who you are today, because you talk a lot about her in your story. Yeah, my grandmother was my happy place. She was mm. my comfort. She never judged me and she helped me to interact with who I am. And that psychic part of me, she was a psychic and she knew that. And she taught me the games of how to make it fun as a child. And I had support. She, it's really hard to know who she was beyond me because. I didn't, you know, I was too young. I was six when she was no longer around. And so I didn't really, you know, at six, you're still thinking you are, everything revolves around you pretty much. Mm -hmm. And so she interacted with me and kindness and love. And she was your typical, if you wanted to picture like your fifties, you know, leave it to beaver type mother who has the apron and the pull up socks and the tie up shoes. That was her. Hmm. Um, But she always was kind. She didn't look happy all the time because us Olsons, we have a, you know, resting face that's not very happy. (laughs) Our Mm -hmm. corners of her mouth, but her energy was happy. She, even though she may not have been smiling huge, she looked, uh, you know, kind of happy, but she was, she had an energy of just happiness when she's around, everything was okay. And this is your father's mother on your, this is on your paternal side. Right. And when she, when she was younger, she was kind of the whisperer of the area. People would come and bring gifts and leave notes and stuff for her to give them their psychic reading for lack of a better word literally back then right she was you know what they would call a visionary woman Mm -hmm. they didn't use the word psychic and we were born and raised mormon and so you know it was kind of taboo to be psychic but you could have dreams and that was fine because spirit can talk to you in dreams with their belief system so she would ask them to put their questions in the mailbox. It was a little bird box that she had underneath the main box and they would leave things in there and then she could get them out and read them and give them a note back and put it back in there. And then they would leave payment, whatever that may be. And nobody knew who was getting what it was always done by ribbons and color of ribbons. So they'd know which one was theirs. That is so neat. I always allow my guests to ask me one question. And so one of the questions you asked me was, what was my biggest takeaway? Yes. And um, on the note of your grandmother, that was my biggest takeaway at the time when your grandpa had died. And your Aunt Betty, who was your everything growing up, she was such a kind lady. 
she's like, get the house ready. There's a funeral happening. And all, all of you and all the kids are all running around trying to tidy up the place. And she comes back, but grandma's not there. And she kept saying, no, like she's, he passed away. And you said, no, not grandpa, grandma. And she says, Rana, I don't have time for your shenanigans or however she worded it. Your grandma has been dead since you were two months old. Like that was like a urge. What is going on here? While I was reading and narrating your book, that was like the defining moment for me. Cause you had grown up, like you were six years old and every time you played with grandma, like who did your family think you were playing with? Like you were alone yeah. this whole time, but you were never alone. Right. And, you know, I do think that they all thought my aunt even said later, she said, we just thought you were so awesome because you were self-entertaining. <laughs> you could go out and play by yourself for hours. For hours and, and hours. Yeah. And people have, you know, visionary friends or imaginary friends. And a lot of times they're not imaginary. They mm. are real because kids are born without the veil. And so we only develop that closing down as we age. And so a lot of times children who are out playing by themselves and stuff have, you know, spiritual company with them. And a lot of times it can be loved ones or their own spirit guide that is accompanying them. But yeah, I was never alone. Hardly You're yet. never alone. You always had grandma with you. Yeah. Tell me about, there's a lot of really difficult things you wrote in the book. What is one of the most difficult part or story that you had to write or that you needed to tell? Well, one of the reasons that I haven't completely read the book was because I, you know, had to my husband passed away and then my son passed away within just a couple of years of each other. And when I was finishing the book up, it was less than a year from my son's death. And so it was still very raw and very painful. And so writing those were extremely painful and reading them. I still haven't done so. Hmm. So though everything in this that's another thing about this book. This is a first draft. <laughs> I did not go back and hash things out. Right. You know, each, each chapter is as a story in itself. It should be, mm -hmm. you know, encapsulated. Mm -hmm. Each one, it can stand on its own. Yeah. And that was um, kind of towards the end of with about your son was very tragic and then just how you fell in love with Carrie all over again was a tragic love story in and of itself. Yes. So and I if I had any advice for anybody out there, it's, you know, don't let time slip by because you get angry as you're in a marriage and you have your ups and downs and the little tiny things, how you put the toilet paper on or squeeze the toothpaste or 
little things that are said hurt your feelings. All of that goes away when somebody has a terminal illness. And, you know, it was so ironic. I kind of told people, you know, for 14 years when we were married and struggling, there was times where I actually wished he would die because it was so painful sometimes to be in that relationship because he wasn't nice then. And um, then when we had gotten divorced and then got back together, I found that we really did love each other and we both had grown up by then. And so I only had five years of really being with my best friend. I felt very cheated. We were together 35 years, but only the last five were really enjoyable. And, you know, I thought, how bad was it that I wasted all those other years? Over petty stuff, most of it was self-inflicted pain because I sat and felt like a victim. Right. Hmm. And you were both remarried as well at the time. And so when you guys came together and married towards the end of your book, it was like a marriage like you were teenagers marrying again. You're so happy and so in love and so giddy and it was very cute and very charming and quite a perfect little tidy wedding that you held in that majestic place. Yes, it is majestic. There is a lot of history there. It's in up Provo Canyon in Utah and there's a lot of history there. Hmm. Um. I had in there the hardest part for me to read. There was a couple of them, and one was about the little girl, Faith, mm-hmm. who was your foster child, and you loved her so much. Um, that was a, a very hard story to tell, being a mom of a girl and kind of growing up with a hard, like a hard relationship with my own mother. And you had kind of a up and down relationship with your mother as well. And so to have this little person in your life that you could just love and keep safe and have this great relationship around, and then we won't give all of it away, but there was a very sad thing that had happened. And that part of your book was one that I had a really hard time telling um and the other the other one that I absolutely loved even though it was a a happier ending than the one with faith was when you were out and you decided that you wanted to be murdered and so you got all dressed up all kind of sleazy perhaps and then you met that man and he you just gave him a chance and he got his life together and needed somebody to champion for him. What was his That's name? true. And he, you know, we walk by the homeless and we walk by the people who are on the streets. And I really seen them as my enemy. I was hoping, you know, that they would do me in. <laughs> but there is some really amazing people who are homeless. My son, CJ, loved the homeless. That's one thing he loved to do was go out and just Mm. talk to them and hear their stories and get to know why and where and you know and there's some really fascinating people and 
I have a lot of friends over the years from having that experience where I was looking for death. I really actually found life um, because I, if you really want to know what it's like to be at the lowest, go and visit a homeless camp. Right. And you will be grateful for all the things that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even he, he said writes to me, so he writes me letters mm-hmm. and, and talks about that and sends me pictures of things because he has now a, a little group, him and his kids, and then they go and, and do things now like we did. And he'll write and tell me, guess what we just did? And we share stories of what we're doing. We kind of have a competition of one upping each other. You How know, cute. who can go do the best thing for somebody. Hmm. Yeah, I really liked him. I always liked when you put him in your car and handed him your bag lunch. And he's like, you came out here to get killed and you just happen to make yourself a lunch. (laughs) (laughs) You're so prepared. (laughs) (laughs) My mother instinct. (laughs) Yeah. Lunch, right? That's right. Um, talk about the boys camp and the and the lodge like where where you went to you had this great job and you loved it there and you had these great people and it was kind of the first time if I read this right where you felt really at home with your work people and you felt really connected to all your colleagues and you felt like you were all kind of going towards the same goal helping these kids can you just tell us a little bit about that part of your life? Yeah, the I did work with some adjudicated youth, and they would be another group of the throwaways, um, you know, and, the, and they are a group of people who need to be watched very carefully, but they were young people. And yes, the staff there were kind of all misfits. We all kind mm-hmm. of just had our own little oddities. and. It was the first time that I was part of this cool kids club. I was part of the staff that started at the bottom and worked my way up. And what I really liked about it was that they didn't shy away from the spiritual stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the owners got the idea of doing sweat lodges and fire walks. And so they started to do some studies with people who have addictions. If they could see a firewalk, they don't even need to walk on the coals, just seeing it and seeing something beyond what their mind tells them is possible actually changed the brain waves. They did EEGs and different kinds of medical tests on the children before we did it. Now, when I say children, they're teenagers, there's no young children, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 12 to 21 year olds. Um, And when they did their tests after the fire walk and after the sweat lodge, their brain was actually lighting up differently. Hmm. And it never went back in the 20 years. They just did the 20 year restudy in year 2020. And it came back that those brain waves never went back to what they were before. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So it changed them forever, apparently. 
And, you know, these were sex offending children. So they have a really high rate of recidivity. Recidivity. And um, so that's why they did it, because they were trying anything to try to give them some higher numbers of keeping them from reoffending. And actually, the ones that they they kept a group who had not, you know, they'd had a lot of groups that before that, that had not had any of that. And there was 85% chance of reoffending even after five or six years of treatment, it was 85% chance of reoffending. When they had the firewalk and that, then they, then it dropped all the way down to 30%. Hmm. Wow. So it makes a big, big difference. And when it came to the drug addiction, it was almost 95% that it cured them. And they didn't even have to participate nope they just had to see in that energy or in that aura feeling well I think that it was a matter of witnessing something that they didn't believe could happen and therefore it empowered them to believe that they even if they didn't feel like they had the power to say no to their addiction it empowered them because it gave them a thought processes of believing something that they thought was impossible. Because I think that one thing that people that are see themselves as victims and drug addiction people and sex offenders often see themselves as a victim is that they hear that a sex offender can't be cured. And so in their mind, they got that. This mm-hmm. gave them something else to believe that even if that was the case, they could beat the odds because they had seen something that was impossible happen. And those coals are 1500 degrees. They would throw hot dogs out there and they would go up in flames within seconds mm-hmm. or, you know, it, it, and it was long, it was about 30 feet. So you know, it wasn't like they thought that they could talk themselves out of what they were seeing. Right. Yeah, it wasn't just a fluke or that person got lucky. And when you were there, there was a kid there. You called him Pyro Kid. Mm -hmm. And he um, was a spirit or ghost. He was a ghost. I don't think he was a spirit. He was very physical looking mm-hmm. and menacing. And I really believe he was a ghost. And you really believe that he burnt the place down? Yes. In I, the end. Even after the place had burnt to the ground and there was no more accelerant of any kind around or anything else, reports say it burned again. Hmm. So for no reason, it just spontaneously started burning all over again. And he um, he would do kind of silly things too. He would throw papers off filing cabinets and he would light matches and make Nurse Ratchet mad as yes. heck. <laughs> and he, when he realized that you could actually see him, he was so curious, like, how can you see me? And what do you know? And how long, like, he was just peppering you with questions about his situation and 
your situation and why you were there, he believed that there was some connection, right? Yeah, I think that he actually was testing to see how much I could see and if I try to stop him. Hmm. I just didn't understand. I couldn't stop him, you know, and it was kind of a test for me too, because I didn't know what I could do. I didn't know what he could do, but we did interact quite a bit. I always wonder, you know, his friend that I never did get to cross over, if she was able to cross over. Um, but he was very angry, very, very angry. And I think he was more, pet- right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I interrupted you there. What did you say? I was just saying that he, you know, basically was an angry young man. Hmm. And I don't know if he was attached to the building, as in, you know, it had been used for a lot of different things throughout the years. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if he was attached to one of the boys or one of the staff. Um, But he definitely was angry at that place at those people there right right yeah he he was kind of an interesting little snippet to your time at the camp the lodge <laughs> yeah it it's a um considered a boys ranch okay yeah so, the boys ranch yeah youth facility and I do think often, you know, if you have to be stuck at some level as a ghost, I wouldn't want it to be as a teenager. <laughs> uh. It's the worst time ever um, for most people, not everybody, but apparently for him it was, and there he is stuck. So I'm on your page. I did not want to go back to being a teenager. No. No. <laughs> What did you learn most about yourself or someone like your mom that has sat with you since you wrote this book? It's kind of permeated your soul, made you really reflect. Was there one thing that kind of just was like, wow, one of those moments? Well, the one thing that it did, the whole thing did after I stopped being so aggravated and I started really looking at the stories and that's part of the journaling that part of that journey was understanding that my mother everything that she did do because she was married 13 times and she never um, found the man that was you know and every single one of them was extremely violent and she kept saying I'm doing this for you girls I'm doing this for you girls and that just didn't make any sense to me until I actually felt what she was doing. And what she was doing was trying to give me the experience and my little sister, the experience that she had had with her father when she was young. Mm-hmm. She wanted to provide us with a loving, kind father figure. And she always looked in the wrong places. And so, you know, that's where... I came to understand my anger for her was actually I was hating the part of her that loved me the most. It just manifested itself in the wrong way. And it took me to feel that. And that's what I think when we all cross over and we live our life review, that's the most amazing gift ever because it fixes all of those misunderstandings. 
Hmm. I had a hard time with your mom in the story. I felt like she just had this, such a great dad. And normally people say like you attract a husband like your father, but she just did not do that. She attracted these mean men or these violent men or men that weren't good to you girls or like so opposite. It was almost like she was getting back at her dad for dying. And that was like her, I'm going to just get you for this because she was so broken after her dad died. Yeah, I do think that part of it, too, is that we either marry the man that is our father or we marry the men that turn us into our mothers. Okay, never heard that before. So, you know, I do think that she turned more into her mother in the end. Um, The things that irritated Mm -hmm. her about her mother, she was doing to me. (laughs) And I had to point that out to her. But actually, she and I became really, really good friends. And she went on ghost hunts with me. And she met grandfather through me. And oh, wow. um, Okay. She was one of my biggest supporters and fans by the time she passed. Oh, I didn't know your mom had died. She died in 2012. Oh, in 2012. Oh, so she, I don't recall you... I didn't really get to say that in the book because it was one of the chapters that had to go. Mm, (laughs) Um, I see. It didn't have enough meat to it. So she doesn't even know about your book. She knows, but. She knows about the book because she knew I was journaling and Mm. I had shared some of the stories with her and she, especially the parts with her and stuff. Some of it she still won't acknowledge, wouldn't even acknowledge happened. Um, wow. But for the most part, it was amazing. Hmm. So she kind of, you guys kind of came to terms with a lot of things and found that common ground. Yes. And That's I had good. to understand that I had the near-death experience in the life review, but she didn't. Mm-hmm. So... I took, I had to really realize that it was going to have to come on my part to be the one to reach out and to remind myself she's still acting or reacting to life as she knows it. And I get the benefit of knowing all. Right. I'm going to read the Locking Horns story. Do you want to set the stage for me? So grandfather and I, we had a lot of special one-on-one moments. And sometimes his goldest nuggets were the best nuggets ever were the ones where he just, you know, said something that he was looking at in the moment. And this is one of those moments where it just so happened to be right at the right place at the right time. Okay, that's perfect. So it's called Locking Horns. The sun has made its way high in the sky before I ventured beyond my tent. Looking around, I find Grandfather sitting alone with his back to me. He is looking out over the valley. A blanket covers his lap. The valley's not deep, 
but the cliff is high enough for one to see for several miles. This was once the land of huge dinosaurs. Their footprints and bones still dot the landscape. There is a deep footprint here in the rock at the cliff's edge, and grandfather's butt is cradled in its center toe. At one point, a large creature a large creature stood here on this very spot, looking out over the same valley. I wonder what they saw. Was it a desert even back then, or was it more of a swampy wasteland that I saw? Was it a desert, oh, sorry, wasteland that I envisioned their world being? Grandfather hears me approaching and without turning, pats the ground next to him, inviting me to join him. Taking a seat inside the toe next to him, I lay my bare heels, let my bare heels dangle over the edge and tap on the rock face below. There is no evidence of the mist from the night before. The multicolored dirt cliffs are majestic. They rise high above the valley and a small river meanders below unobstructed. Its easy flow gives off an energy of life in slow motion. The faint smell of campfire still dances in the air, and my mind is pulled back to the events of the night before. The autumn chill prickles my skin, and I look like a plucked chicken. I rub my arms to warm up. How did you sleep, he asks, not taking his eyes from the view, like a stone. Did you find the answers you seek? Yes and no. You still are confused. I have always known the right thing to do. I just don't know if I have the courage to do it. If I write letters to officials detailing the risk of the boys, detailing the risk the boys present, I have to turn the page, to the public, if I contact the labor board about the staffing issues, that can add to the risk. If I rock the boat, I will lose my job. If I lose my job, my world will turn upside down. I have responsibilities. I work three jobs, but the ranch is 70% of my income. CJ and I could become homeless, I say. Grandfather lets out one small grunt, but says no more. My heart tells me I love Corey, but he obviously doesn't feel the same about me. His actions scream it loud and clear, yet I hang on, hoping he will somehow magically change his mind. I don't know how to explain it. One day, my whole outlook changed. I almost feel like I am in love with the feeling of being in love. I don't want that to end. I really like it. I say, leaning back on my hands and tipping my head up to the sun. Hoot, are you in a battle with others or yourself? The story is written in the scene. The two Goliaths square off, eyes focused on the other, nostrils flare and puffs of steam and snot fill the air as they bend their heads. The clash of their huge antlers is heard for miles around, echoing through the canyon. The older of the two brings experience, while the younger brings the strength of youth. One hard jerk at just the right angle breaks the neck of one bull. Breaks the neck of the old bull and he falls dead, pinning the younger in a lifeless eye-to-eye gaze. 
The young bull tries with all his might to unlock his horns from the dead elder, but it's of no use. After hours of struggle, his energy spent, the younger owl falls next to his foe. Trapped in death's embrace, suffering and exhausted, he dies of dehydration, while a cool river runs, only feet from him singing its mocking song. I do love grandfather's way of teaching. <laughs> he had such awesome way of pointing out the obvious of but things that we go about not noticing. And he would say so much in so few words. Yes. And he would just make you reflect. And you would come up with the answer on your own. Yeah, I think that he was, like, magical when it came to knowing exactly what I needed to hear in the moment. Because, you know, he never judged me. He never made me feel less than or worried that I might say something to offend him. Mm -hmm. And yet every word he ever uttered, I just paid the closest amount of attention to and I think it annoyed him sometimes, even to the point like where he was singing the whole time. And I thought he was magical sentences to bring mm-hmm. in the spirits. And it turned out to be a shopping list. Yeah, his grocery you know? list or something. Yeah. So, you know, he was just an ordinary man. But to me, he was special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even how you always described how he looked like gajillion wrinkles and small and he would always just sit perched on his feet he was an old man when um we were at the ranch there at the indian reservation he was a hundred years old um but he would move like a rabbit Mm -hmm. um although one time he did step on a skunk's tail Hmm. and the little skunk let out a scream and ran into the bushes And he was so worried about that little skunk, he had to go find it to see if he had damaged his tail. And he found it all right. And it squirted him bad (laughs) and made him take off all his clothes. And we tried to wash him in the water and everything, but I couldn't hardly stand it going home. I mean, crazy. My car stunk for months after that. But he was somebody who, you know, he was the kindest, most gentle. He didn't have any education um, to really speak of, but he was one of the smartest people I've ever known. So do you think if you never had gone to the boys' ranch, would you have bumped into Grandfather Lightfeather? No, there's absolutely no I, I believe that too. That. How else would you have ever done that? And I believe it must be charted. And because he had been waiting for me. Mm-hmm. And he was telling everybody that you were coming. Yeah, they just didn't know who Hoot was. Right. He didn't know me as my name. He knew me as Hoot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure he knew me as my name, but he only called me Hoot. He never told them Hoot, you know, Ronner or anything. He just said Hoot. Right. I believe that too. I believe that I don't know how else you would ever have connect, reconnected with him had it not been for that job. And was there any connection between that job and 
your family or your previous life or anything? No, no. Um, I had just graduated from college and there was an advertisement for, you know, a counselor at a boy's ranch. And I thought, well, I probably won't get the job because I don't have any experience, experience. Yet or anything. Um, but I went in there and Corey was the one that conducted the interview. And there was a connection between us immediately, it felt as though. And he called me as soon as I got home and said, you're hired. Hmm. Can you start next week? And I said, yes. <laughs> wow. I was wondering that. Talk about the part when you saw the man you saved in your in the car during your vision quest because it was it's kind of hard it's kind of hard like reading your book to know when the timings happen mm-hmm. and you said this before to me like sometimes it's years and sometimes it's only minutes but yeah time's really crazy there is no time on the other side so it's kind of an interpretation of the human mind mm-hmm but it was part of my vision quest and um, I was instantly transported to what looked like the Middle East. Now I'm terrible with geography, but I had seen it on TV enough to know that that's what the Middle East looked like. Mm -hmm. And so I was standing with a bunch of people. It wasn't just me. We were all in spirit and we could see the, convoy of cars coming along and they weren't really cars they were like hummers and they were military and he said now when I tell you there was a a guy there that was kind of instructing me and he said when I tell you I want you to put your hands on that car and do not take your hands off well it just so happened that I happened to be right by the window um, a door with a window in it and this gentleman on the other side, and they said, now, and we all put our hands on it, and they were all around the car, and it just lifted up and came down with a, an explosion, but it was kind of like what you see on TV. It's like if you could mute it hmm. um, and go into slow motion, that's what it was like. And you could feel the vibration, kind of like a sonic boom, but it, what, it didn't knock us off our feet or or harm us in any way. But it was inside the cab that I could see everything in there going topsy-turvy. Like it was sun, it was just like if you took a box of crayons and throw, tossed them up in the air. Everything, the people, everything was being jostled inside. There was weapons, you know, that were kind of being lifted up inside there. There was all kinds of It almost looked like papers and stuff, too. And then instantly we came back down and it was still whole. And then people came in that were human beings rushing around trying to figure out what had happened and to save the people. But they were all fine. I mean, there was some injuries with like head injuries and some were bleeding and stuff like that. But none of them died. Fast forward. However many years you're sitting in this. So many years later, (laughs) after, you know, 
everybody had been telling me, you should do psychic readings like Sylvia Brown does and those where you get in a gallery and we'll put it together out at Asylum 49 in Utah. It was a haunted house that they said, come out here and we'll put you up there. I have chills, Ron. I already have chills. (laughs) So I get up there and I'm nervous. I'm very scared. I'm nervous. I'm wondering if I go blank, I'm going to look like a fool. And you're all by yourself. I'm up there all by myself. Auditorium kind of looking room, right? Yes. Yes. It's a big, you know, not gigantic, but enough that it'll hold a couple of hundred people. And we're sitting there and I know they're video taping it and that it could be on the news because I'd been on the news earlier that day and at that same facility and I knew they might want clips from it or something and so I'm sitting there trying to relax and I'm closing my eyes as people are filling in and they're sitting there and I open my eyes and they're in front of me in the front row we walk eyes it's me and the man that had been on the other side of that glass of that guy of that car in my vision class. And we instantly recognized each other. It was instant. And he was a grown army man. And he starts bawling. I am not a very emotional person in public, especially, but I couldn't help it. It was like, there was this love, you know, when you cry because you're in love with some feeling, like when you first see your baby, and they put it in your arms, that moment of connection, that soul-to-soul connection, that's what I had with him. And I knew he had cried out his wife's name in that Mm -hmm. moment, that car, Mm -hmm. and she was sitting next to him. And she was just dumbfounded looking, you know, like what in the world? How do you know each other? Yeah. Yes. And I jumped up and ran down there. He jumped up and we just embraced each other. And everybody was like staring at us like we were insane. So we had to tell the story, what had happened. And it made a big difference for his wife because they had been struggling with their marriage. And for her to know that her name was on his lips and he was to die meant the world to her. It it changed their world forever. That's such a good story. It is a good story. It's one of the happy moments, you know, knowing that he was alive because of us, you know, and he had a purpose. And I've often wondered whatever happened to him, you know, with Mm. all my clients, it's kind of like that. I wonder, you know, where did they go? What did they do? Because there has to be a real purpose that the people that was in that Hummer survived because it was definitely planned. And I felt so honored to be part of it. It was amazing. It really was. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Well, now that we got that story over. Talk about this Halloween party. So you're invited to go and do tarot card readings at this very opulent party. 
where everybody was dressing up and you got to go and you're like in this witch's costume or something. I can't remember. Yeah. It's ridiculous. We were very poor, you know? And so every year I try to find either a part-time job or something to, so we could have Christmas because Christmas had always been our big holiday. Okay. And it was, you know, coming up and I hadn't gotten any money saved. And so I was kind of panicking and people said, you know, why don't you just dress up like a fortune teller and oh, fortune teller, right. advertise for Halloween parties that you would come in and read tarot cards. And I'm like, well, I don't really read tarot cards, but I guess <laughs> that I can just go in and pretend, you know, that I'm doing that part and just kind of do whatever comes natural. So I put my um, advertisement in the paper and I only got one person the call. There was only one. And he said that he was having a big party. And if I'd be willing to come and dress up and, you know, read tarot cards and do like the psychic reading of the gypsy woman. And I said, yes. And when I got there, it was gorgeous it was up in the mountains and it was quite a ways away it was like an hour drive to Hmm. this place and and you couldn't there was no cell phones back then there was no cell phones that I had I'm sure rich people had them but I didn't have them and they would have reached up there anyway because it was in the mountains and I told my family I'd be back early you know before dark if I could and because it was an early party it was like four o'clock in the afternoon that they wanted me to be there you know And so I get there and and they kind of put me off in the corner of this little tiny round table. And he says, you know, they'll just come over as they want to and sit down with you. And I'm like, well, you know, it's not really private. (laughs) He's Mm. like, it's okay. They're all, you know, and and I really think he thought it was fake, you know, and that it would just be for fun. A hoax. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a a gimmick. A gig. And really, I didn't know what it would be because I had never done it before. So it could turn to just be like that. But when I got there, the first two or three that came, I have never in all my life been to a party. This party must have been charted as well because I have been to a lot of parties now. I mean, (laughs) I have thousands of customers and been to thousands of different things. But back then it was my very first one and I didn't know what I was doing, but the very first guy that came up, his brother had committed suicide and he was right there adamant. This, his spirit, his brother's spirit was there and he wanted to tell all. Mm-hmm. So I started telling him what he said and he couldn't believe it. And it became so much that he almost was obsessed through the night. Even when other people were coming up, he kept wanting to come back in. Um, his brother, not him, but his right. the dead brother, kept wanting to to be heard. He was very vocal. I started telling the living brother, you know, this is what's going on. And before long, the whole table had been moved out into the middle of the room, and I was like center stage. And they were all. I would gather four or five people had people who had committed suicide in that room and they needed the closure and Mm -hmm. then you know there was the other members that were coming up and play you know wanting to have their moment of playing the game they kind of thought it was a game until they get the answers that only they knew 
And mm-hmm. there was this one little old lady. She says, it's okay, dear. You don't have to be pretending with me. And I says, well, your sister says, Margaret, you didn't take your pills today. You better go take those pills. And she says, what? And she grabs her purse and she looks in there and she goes, oh, my goodness, Gary, get me some water. I haven't had my pills. And then she went around and told everybody that I was real or something, I guess, because then it was like 24 hours later, I was still there. And I was really worried about my family thinking, you know, they're going to think I was kidnapped and murdered and going to find me in a ditch somewhere. And they Mm -hmm. really were angry when I got home. But I made a lot of money that day. And it was fun. For the first time, I was doing something that was fun. And I made money at it. And I helped people. And I thought, this is my calling. This is And you, yeah, and you had like a moment where this is what I was supposed to do. Yep. Yep. I was accepted. I might be the weirdo in the room, but I'm the good weirdo that everybody accepts, you know? And I think there was a lot of skeptics thinking that perhaps I was, you know, making it up or new stuff, or maybe the host had told me some things, but he reassured them that I hadn't. And when I got home for weeks after that, I was getting calls from those skeptics that at least have a private reading. Hmm. And I never regretted that. Right. And that's kind of like, that's when your life changed. Basically, you went from never really doing public readings or, or psychic talks or anything into and then your life changed. Right. So then they started calling. And then I had a stalker. I know. Yes. Was in my you know, parking out in front and the police really wouldn't help. And so I got kind of scared doing things in my home anymore or allowing people to know where I was and started to do them online at California Psychics. And before long, I was one of the top readings readers on there. And they flew me out to California and I had my first taste of what it would be like to be a celebrity. And I stood there looking out the window of this penthouse and hearing Carrie snore behind me. And I'm just looking out the window in the dark and thinking, how did I ever get here? You know, Mm -hmm. I'm the little pig girl in Utah, you know, clean all the way out here in Hollywood. And from that moment on, I, I think something changed within me that it doesn't matter what other people think my worth always came from inside. And at that moment I realized I was happy with who I was. I didn't need all that. Um, At the moment I didn't need it. It all began, began happening. (laughs) It's like, you know, I I really would have liked to have, for me, for some reason, I, I seem to find that I find the purpose way after things are finished. I don't enjoy it in the moment for some reason. It's like way after I start to think, oh, wow, that was amazing. But I didn't get to see it in the time. Hmm. That's interesting, especially how you can reflect on that now. Exactly. That's easier now. And then now with COVID being as it is, and I can't tour anymore, and I can't get out and do the things that I normally was doing with my 
customers, my clients. For a while there, I was getting really burned out. Now I wish I had it again. Right. So, because you really love doing it. Yes. Yes. I love meeting people. I love getting the small groups together. And, you know, that's, I like the big groups too. I mean, I worked with Sylvia Brown for years, but it's not the same as the intimate family mm. get together kind of thing. I, when you and I were first meeting and talking, you said, like, this is, you were who was supposed to read my book. This isn't just by fluke, like it was on purpose. We were supposed to meet on purpose. We're connected now. And ever since you said that to me, I found that so interesting and that I even repeated it to another author that I interviewed and said, like, we were meant to meet, like we will always be connected now because of your book, because I auditioned for your book, because you wrote your book. Now we'll always be connected. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I think we are connected more than we ever realize, you know, and I do think that there is a reason you are the one to read my book. I really believe that 100%. Hmm. I love that. Um, my favorite story or one of them in your book is the one about the neighbor. So it's your mom's neighbor And your mom and dad are now separated and you're kind of back and forth between your mom's house and your dad's house. And this neighbor is sitting on the front step and she kind of brings you guys cookies that were a little dry. (laughs) All the milk in the world couldn't have helped that cookie go down. But she says she knows that you have this gift and she wants to ask you some questions. Tell us that story. Yes, she was the most lovely neighbor. I mean, she really was. And she did make the driest cookies on earth. (laughs) They really (laughs) were. But she had a husband that loved her. And, um, you know, she often wondered what he would think and what he was doing. And because he he had passed on, he had died, but Mm -hmm. he was always around her. He was always there. And he, you know, she kind of finally asked me, I see that you have this gift. Do you see my husband? And I told her, yes, I do. And he wants you to know that you're a hot dish. Well, you know, my little girl's mine. Because how old were you at the time, Rana? I was about eight. eight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I was really trying to hide my spiritual gifts from my mother because she didn't approve of them so I never wanted the neighbor to talk where my mom could hear her Hmm. um, and that but she did ask and and he said she was a hot dish and she knew that was coming directly from him because that's how he spoke to her and it you know you could just see it in her eyes there was just a twinkling there and a big smile and she looked younger just knowing that lifted mm. from her and took years from her. And it, that was probably the first time that I felt that kingling, knowing that I had just given a message. Mm. Um, I, you know, 
they wouldn't let me give messages. Like when my little brother died, I wanted to tell my mom, you know, he's right there. But they shushed me and didn't want me to tell her. Right. You know? And so um, it was good to be able to kind of share it and make a difference. And it felt good. So that was probably the first time that happened. Mm-hmm. I love that story. We might not have enough time for Mount St. Helens, but you were definitely a survivor of Mount St. Helens. Can you give us some? Ah, uh, there's so much to tell about this part of your life, but give us your highlights or your yeah, scary we were, parts. <laughs> we were, you know, kind of nomads. I was 13 and invincible, and we were at Mount St. Helens. And I live here now. I'm at the base of Mount St. Helens. This is where mm. I, I knew when I was 13, I would return here. And the moment I could move here, I did. So I own a piece of land right at the base. Oh, wow. So I've come home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes, I I did watch it erupt. And it was the most powerful energy I've ever felt on any of, nothing has ever compared to it. The fire walking, the sweat lodge, none of that has ever came close to the heat or the energy that came from that. It was totally darkness within seconds. And I was just running. And I didn't even know where I was running. I was just running. And I heard my father's voice. And I heeded his guidance. And and I just kind of turned and went. And out of nowhere, my stepfather just grabbed me and pulled me into the trailer. And he said, I don't know what caused me to grab at that moment. I just felt like I had to. And I didn't know who I'd be pulling in. (laughs) But he says, I just did it. And that was me. And we sat in that trailer for two weeks. And the National Guard had to come get us out. And, you know, it was fun for me. There was moments because I had lost a guy that I had the biggest crush on in my world, you know, Mm -hmm. David. But I knew he was dead and I was trying to reach him, but I couldn't reach him. Um, And there was death all around me. I felt that. So I had to block a lot of it, I think, is part of the reason, too, that it's kind of hazy about the the following two weeks. I don't remember a whole lot other than playing games and wondering how much longer I was going to have to stay in that tiny trailer with three crazy people. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a teenager. Everybody's crazy. Mm-hmm. Have you ever connected with that crush? Have you ever meditated or tried you to know, connect? You know, I him? have tried, but I do not get anything for myself. Oh. I have never been able to connect with my husband, my son, no, Betty, none of them. Um, there was when I did that first reading, when I met the gentleman that had been in the army car Mm-hmm. They were there in the back row clapping. Um, but that's the only time I had ever seen any of my spiritual family. Wow. 
So I haven't been able to connect with any old boyfriends or friends or Hmm. it's not fair, really. (laughs) Do you have a favorite story you'd like me to read? Nope. I like all of them. I lived them already. So what's next for you, Rana? So right now, I've kind of got a few little things I'm working on. I'm making journals um, that there will be one for dieting and stuff like that. And then there's another one for ghost hunting. And then there's another one for spiritual endeavors. Um, mm. And then there's another one that's a hoot. It's, it's all the lessons from the book that will be put into having some little exercises and different things like that Um, and then I'm kind of coming up with creating a program type thing where people who make people can make videos and stuff like that before they die so that when after they die their family will still have videos of them and what they want to say so kind of like a video journal for Mm -hmm. posterity so that they can, you know, my fat, the one thing that people say all the time is I just miss talking to them every day. I want to see their face. I want to hear the voice. So I came up with this little idea. I'm creating videos um, where I have backdrops and different things like that, that, take you in different places so it doesn't look like I'm in my bedroom but I'm making these videos of me saying hi every day and there'll be 365 of them so that they can see my voice hear my voice and see my face every day and then I made up postcards that say from heaven and they're what I kind of pictured what heaven was like while I was Mm -hmm. there um been trying to do the graphics on that. And then there'll be 50 of those postcards. They can pull out kind of like, you know, when people pull out an angel card for the day, that it will have a little message on there of hope or whatever spirit kind of pulls that, whatever they reach in and pull out will be their spiritual message for me for the day. It might just be, Hey, how are you doing? Or it might be really deep and saying, you got this. Hmm. So that's my personal stuff that I'm doing and the professional stuff that I'm doing. And once I am able, I'm going to start doing the book tour and signing and all that. And they said they wanted to make a movie of the book. Um, and that has been derailed for the moment because of COVID. Right. That'd be pretty amazing. It would be fun. <laughs> be fun and crazy. Yes. I wonder who would play who in your That's world. What people will ask me, you know, and, and I'm like, well, everybody that I would put as me, they're getting too old. I always thought Kathy Bates would do well. Oh, like, my God. She would be perfect. Um, but, you know, if we get COVID for the next 10 years, I don't know. <laughs> that will be, you know, who would be picked. But, um, you know, I also like, you know. Jenny McCarthy is kind of fun. Um, I don't know. I don't. Hmm. I just leave that up to the universe. I'm. If it ever happens, I'm sure they'll figure it out. 
You know who um, should play your dad? Who? It should be um, Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, he would be good. He would be really be good, good. And he would be right about the right age. To play your dad. Yes. Because I always pictured your dad as like, um, well, like Joaquin Phoenix in um, Walk the Line. Exactly. Yes. That's, is that how your dad was? He actually was. And he wore a black shirt a lot. Right. And he always had it kind of open. Yes. Right. mm -hmm. And he loved country music and he was, you know, the the good old country boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was a certain part of him that, yeah, that would actually work really well. Yeah. I think that would be a good one. Okay. So as we're going to close here, tell us the best story about Pinky. Pinky was my pig and he was my best friend and I got him my dad let me go with them to buy another pig and in Missouri and they were they were gonna get rid of it it was a he was the runt so it was kind of I was a living fern you know from Charlotte's Web and they sold it to my dad for $25 back then that was quite a bit of money Um, but it was, you know, he let me have it. And when I got him, he was about the size of a small dog. But when he died or when I got, you know, him taken away from me, he was probably a good three and a half, four feet tall. He was a very large pig and I'd ride on his back and I would, you know, run through the yard and the cornfields and, he was very well trained. He never went in the house, although I've had a potbelly pig that's lived in my house for years, but um, named Duncan. But Pinky was a full outdoor pig, and um, he was my best friend. And when he was little, he I would dress him up in my clothes, and I would mm-hmm. put him in my buggy and pull him around town. And and you'd put bows on his tail. I would put bows. I hated bows in my hair. And so my mom, I was a real tomboy and she wanted a little girl in a dress. And so I don't understand that because she was the biggest tomboy too, but (laughs) but she wanted me to wear this dress and these little pigtails. So the way she got it was she'd give me a set for for Pinky and then we'd we'd match. But before the end of the day, he had all the, he had them all in his tail. They were all and I could hear him clicking around he'd wag his little tail and it would clack back and forth on his haunches but he and you know when getting to see him on the other side and knowing that our pets are there and not only do we see our families we see everything that we've ever Mm -hmm. cared about nothing's ever lost this is all temporary and it all changes um you know but I do still think of him now, you know, as if I feel him, I feel him. I think he comes around. Sometimes I'll be walking. I can feel something knock me over almost. I'm like, dang it, Pinky. Don't stand in your own lane. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you guys had such a special connection 
you could talk to him and he would kind of talk back. Yeah, it was like, you know, he would. He would snort and grunt and it was like I really could talk to him. I've often wondered in my mind, I was making it up or if I could actually hear him and understand him. But in my mind, we were having conversations. Mm -hmm. I, I really felt like I could talk to him from a distance too. Like we would play a game. We'd go into the cornfield and he would stay in one place and I'd run to the clean, you know, two acres away, lay on my belly and try to hold really still. And in my mind, whisper, I'm over here, I'm over here. And he would always find me. I'm sure part of it oh was spelling, but at the time it felt like it was because I was talking to him. <laughs> right. Well, anything else you want to share? It's been fun. It's been very fun. I loved it. I want to thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. After completing her memoir, she did do a reading for me. This was over the phone. And I did send her a list of questions and people's names that I was curious about, so she could meditate on them. I asked about my husband's health, my friend Christy, and here's a few things Rana said. My husband's health is actually better now than it's ever been. He's actually younger on the inside. And if you've been listening to my show for the last few years, you'll remember my husband has had heart surgery, and he is in incredible health now. My mom, the infamous mother I discuss sometimes, one thing my mom has said for over 20 years is that she's an orphan. My mom was never an orphan. She did, however, lose her mom when she was 16 and her dad when she was around 40, but grew up in a home with all five kids and two parents. Rana used this word orphan when describing my mom which was kind of chilling and validating. My friend Christy, this is a friend that I lost a few years ago to breast cancer. She was a dear friend of mine. You know, that easy, convenient friend that just clicks and works. Rana said, she's around me sometimes. When I see a flicker out of the corner of my eye, and when I'm working in my studio, this happens a lot. I could go on about this reading, as it was very impactful and very truthful. She spoke a lot about my voiceover work and to encourage me to continue it, trying everything that comes my way. But don't spend money on it. Just do it as I love to do it. I think that was good advice. So here comes London's convo with Rana LaFay as well as Education of Hoot and Chapter 1 in its entirety. The music for this episode is called Tackle Box Blues in memory of Rana's mom and her love for working with her dad at the gas station. You'll have to read or listen to the book to find out why this was and is so important. As I come closer to the end of this season, I'm looking for ideas for next season and a co-host. So if you're thinking of starting a podcast and have some great ideas for a theme, let me know. Reach out to me. Let's chat.
Coming up before the season ends, we meet Tamira Thane from Who Chains You Publications. And she loves to rescue and bring attention to all things around animal abuse, cruelty, rescues, etc. And another Valerie who goes by Val, and her handle is Val Loves to Create. She's a player of paper to process life. Also, Brandy Fleck, and she's an incredibly passionate podcaster who tells stories about humans and their acts being amplified. Anna Bazzolino is also coming up before I wrap up the season, and she takes fabrics, processes them into works of art. Where this started for her, coming to Canada, and more. Until next time, this is Valerie Moss from Studio 17. Remember, wait for the end of the show because London chats with Rana Le Fay about ghosts, spirits, and Rana's book experiences. And you'll never guess whose house she was married in. Good. Um, I had a question about the ghosts you saw. Okay. Um, in your book, um, educated, um, uh, educated of hoot, education of hoot, hoot. Sorry. Um, when <laughs> there's you? two photos, um, and the first one is on the top, um, I mean bottom. My wedding to carry for the second time. Ghost is up in the left corner. Mm-hmm. Um. What, what? How do you think you saw it and no one else saw it? Actually, I didn't really see that at the time of the wedding. That was a photo that somebody took. But there, the whole time we were there, there's a gentleman by the name of Robert Redford. Um, okay. He's a very famous actor. And I... he and I are friends. And he let me have his house for our wedding. So that's his Oh, house. wow. And so... We did it on the back porch, but from the moment that we got there, there was, I seen a little child running around that was a spirit, and there was an older woman, and all of my guests, we all stayed there for a week. We had different guests that came and left throughout that week. Almost every one of them had a ghost experience while they were there. It was a very haunted home, but it wasn't a scary haunted it was more it was like more like fancy haunted yeah kind of fancy because it was her wedding yeah yep (laughs) yep they just wanted to enjoy the festivities I think some of them may have been my ancestors that had came in too um yeah it wasn't scary um uh, what did you feel like when you saw the ghosts so when I seen them, it wasn't that big a deal because I'd seen them my whole life. But it was kind of, you know, traumatic for my mother, <laughs> actually, because she didn't really believe in the spiritual stuff too much. And so That's she like had my dad. <laughs> and, you know, so she was 
in her bed and all of a sudden this orb came from the ceiling and an orb is like a, a round ball of light. And it came right out of the ceiling. It came right down and kind of hovered over her chest. And it made her feel really, really loved and warm and comfortable. And then it shot away. And I really think that was her father coming to say hi to her. Um, but it changed her from that moment on. She and I had a different connection. And I think that it was because of that experience. That's really cool. Here it is here. Um, and the second um, photo, it's um, at the asylum. And the 49 ghosts. Ghost hunting. Yeah. Bottom right corner, center, one, two, three. From left while the ghost is taking George, ghost taken at George Washington thing. Yeah, so that one right there is actually taken. That's George Washington's house, and um, they were my son CJ and I had went on a trip, and we were sitting in the car looking at it because he wasn't healthy enough to really get out and walk around. So we were in the parking lot, and all of a sudden, this woman that was transparent, walked from one house to the other and walked right through the fence. And he seen it. And it was the first one he had ever seen. And I had my camera rolling. And so we were able to capture that. And that's actually now a photo. If you go and visit that house, they've got that framed there for people to see. Mm -hmm. um, but we took it really quick. Um, I think it's a residual ghost I don't think that it's a haunting I think that it's actually the house next to it is a um, where the staff stayed and so I do think that perhaps it's one of the staff that is still walking between the two buildings in a residual loop of energy rather than an actual ghost mm, cool um I was I was asking those questions about because uh, um, a few weeks ago I've been seeing these weird like uh, weird uh, shadow like things in the house like ghosts and the first one was um, uh, like maybe a few weeks ago and then I saw one that I kept looking at the wall and mom was like what's wrong and I'm like I don't know I keep seeing something there and the third so, one was yesterday. You know yesterday. that's totally normal. That's totally normal. And you know what? Boys don't understand it as well as us girls. And I'll tell you why. Puberty and women, our psychic abilities kick in. And so we get that motherly instinct kind of thing that kicks in. And it also opens up our spirituality a little bit. It's hmm. nothing to be frightened of. And they're not there to harm you. They're all around us. And we all have the same ability. We can all do the same thing I do. I don't have anything special that you can't do. But you have the power because on this side, you are the powerful one. You have the body. You have the control. So all you got to do is tell them to get the heck out. Just say, out you go. You're not welcome here. <laughs> the other thing is, is there, you got to kind of understand the types of hauntings. Because there is. Um, this one kind of gave me um, the feeling. I've got a few feelings. Um, uh, like a couple of years ago, uh, I felt like uh, my dad's grandma was there. Mm -hmm. um, she had passed away a few, um, I think a few months before that, but I had noticed that she was 
Um, like I got a creepy feeling that she was there. Mm-hmm. And, and if you I get somebody's like different name like that or a thought of them, that's probably who it really is because they, that's how they try to let you know is they'll suddenly give you a thought or a feeling so you kind of know who they are. Uh, she really likes to kiss the top of your head. So if you feel that like little spider webby stuff up there once in a while, that's her, you know, touching you. But she doesn't want to scare you. She just comes and visits and then leaves. Um, there is some children that kind of come around you. Um, and I don't know if those are your children that you haven't had yet. Um, I can or- have children, but not know I had children. <laughs> <laughs> so their children before you know they come here they know you're going to be their mom so they can kind of and so they'll come and visit they'll kind of hang out you know heaven is right where we are they're just vibrating at a different level yeah they're right above us yep five feet about five <laughs> feet that's why it always looks like they're floating but that's really where their ground is mm, that's so they're really just cool. walking on ground but it's up above ours just a little bit probably the one ghost that like I believe I'm pretty sure I saw was the ghost that I kept looking at the wall in the bathroom um it was it looked like um uh one of my aunties I believe is it auntie Janet and auntie or great Mm -hmm. auntie auntie great auntie to you um it's she's my great auntie and her name's auntie Janet and um we were talking about her and I kept noticing her and um she is she passed away. Uh, I think she wasn't eating or something, but she didn't. Um, I didn't think that I didn't really be, I didn't really like think about seeing ghosts at that time until I saw Nanny's ghost. And then a couple weeks ago, her ghost. Yeah. So they shouldn't bug you constantly. They'll just come and go. Um, but if you want to control them and you want to see certain ones, you can ask them. You know, you can say, Auntie, come visit me if you want. <laughs> and you can tell the ones you don't want to go away. Um, you are in control. You have 100% power over it. And it's normal. So don't ever feel bad or scared. And I know your mom is open to talk to you, and I'm open to talk to you. So if you ever need anything, just feel free to ask. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. Anything else? Uh I'm trying to think of any time that I've sought spirits. Probably the only time was at school. I yeah. see spirits at my school too. And yeah. later when I got older and I actually did the homework, I found out that a teacher had died in my classroom back in like 1919 when she was waiting for her husband to come pick her up. And she passed away there in my classroom. And she was still walking the halls. And I think she was an actual ghost that didn't know she was dead. But some ghosts will look like kind of, you know, like when you're going on a hot road and you see the little weird energy above the road where, you know, you kind of see it wavy. That's how ghosts often will look before they'll start to materialize. I thought that was the heat. (laughs) That is. I'm just saying that's how ghosts can look. Oh, okay. Similar in the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if any teachers have died in my school. That's creepy. <laughs> never know, hey? Yeah. <laughs> well, only the ones that can give you the answers to the test questions, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you, Rhonda.
You're welcome. Have a good day. Thanks, Bugs. Good Bye. to go? Yeah. Bye. Okay. Dear reader, warning, once you hear something you cannot unhear it, proceed to read this book with caution. Thank you for taking the time to inquire about my book. I must admit that over the past 20 years, I have felt like I was blackmailed into writing it. However, It's been a labor of love, and I am glad it is completed. You are not reading this by accident. If you find yourself here, it is by design. Yes, you in the bookstore or browsing on the internet. I have been shown the people reading this book. I was forced back after drowning so that you would have this opportunity to know what I experienced while on the other side. Coming across it could be simply for the enjoyment of a good story, or it could be the message you have been looking for. Whatever the reason, I am grateful for your time and energy. I love you and hope you know that you matter. Please read this book with an open mind and heart. I am classifying this work as creative nonfiction meaning that it is a book of truth. However, I did take liberties in the telling of the story to piece it all cohesively. I know there will be the non-fiction police out there looking to peel back every layer and word to measure it against facts. I understand and hope that it holds up under such scrutiny. However, I did not do my homework to make sure my recollection was perfect, such as the weather. Or I may say it happened on a Monday, when in fact would show it happened on a Tuesday. Many of these memories are over 50 years old. I have kept journals and writings on these events over the years, and have referred to them to stimulate the memories. There could also be points of view that differ from mine. I wrote the book as honest and with as much detail as possible. There could be some who remember things and events differently than me. I look forward to reading their books as to the way they remember events. I recognize that one event can have many points of view, and that is awesome. This book is not meant to change anyone's point of view about God, spirit, or their religion. This book is about my spiritual journey. If there is a nugget or two that you can pull from its pages to give you hope and guidance, all the better. If not, then I hope you enjoyed the journey of the story. I love you and have a magical day. Rana LaFay Hoot. Part 1 Life 
What mysteries and winding paths did my soul weave? What did God feel through my tears and fears as they fell, shattering into a million mirrors? Have the uncountable grains of sand been counted? Life stories layer upon layer to be explored. The joys, the pain, the fears lie hidden. Once found, return to their corner of memory until it is time to revisit. Helene Hermolaju. Death. I am dead and I'm going to heaven ass first. Death is a fickle, cunning bitch as she stalks, isolating her prey. And so it is on that day in late June 1997, it decides to pounce. The ski boat pulls the small round tube through the water with ease, whipping it from side to side over the wake, giving the rider a thrill. At least, that's what the onlookers from the boat think as they smile, wave, and laugh at the spectacle behind them. They have no idea that I am literally about to die before their very eyes. The sunlight pierces my retinas like shrapnel. Squinting, I turn my head causing water to slap my face raw and shoot a deluge of foul liquid up my nostrils. I gasp for air, gagging as the grit of lake slime slides over my teeth, catching my tongue, giving me my final meal before I die. My white-knuckle frozen hands clutch to the small rubber rings on either side of the tube. My feet fly in the air, then slam down on the rubber craft. I've lost all control of their movement as they smash into one another, then ricochet back at odd angles. Oh God, please let them stop the boat. My head bounces, lolling off the wake. I tense every muscle in my back, shoulders, and neck to keep from being decapitated by the force of the wild rooster tail of water. Stop! 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 I yell. The boat is just a haze in the distance. The rope tied to the raft is an umbilical cord, whipping and dragging me over Delta Lake's mirror surface. From a distance, the soft, silent reflection of low hills and high Utah sky gives the lake a fresh and comforting appearance. My father-in-law, son, and sister-in-law all wave, with smiles splitting their faces in two. No one on the boat reads the terror on my face. As the lake's water batters and bruises me, I struggle to sit upright in the tube's donut hole. But the raft that had looked so big when I first jumped in 
was too small to withstand both the whipping force of being tethered to a high-speed boat and the payload it now carried. My heart rattles inside my ribcage. Breathing is nearly impossible as my lungs burn and struggle for a full breath. My teeth involuntarily chomp down after each airborne whip, almost cutting my tongue in two. I feel dizzy. Fear spreads through my body like ice. I certainly cannot keep holding on much longer. I am going to either drown or be beaten to death. A limp and lifeless hall, I will be reeled in like a dead fish. Please, God, I have children. They need me. Give me the strength to hang on. God, if you let me live, I will do better. I promise. I don't want to die. As if God has answered my pleas, the boat begins to slow with all the smoothness of a BMX track, giving way to gentle gliding speed bumps. Then, finally, a calm stall. I made it! My brain begins to clear as I take several large gulps of air. I cough as hot air collides with the wet lung tissue. My neck is on fire. Numb arms lie like limp cold spaghetti at my sides. It takes three conscious efforts to will my fingers to unlock and stretch out. Pain shoots up from each tip like lightning, ending at my elbows. Much like the rheumatic efforts of a hundred-year-old woman, I spread the fingers apart and wince. The appendages scream in protest as feeling begins to creep back in, the blood rushing to warm them. Pins and needles electrocute the flesh. The distance between the boat and me narrows as my family begins pulling me in. My father-in-law stands at the rear of the water jet and is hand over fisting me towards him. In the harsh summer sun, his skin takes on a yellow hue. His eyes look misplaced in their sockets, giving him a bug-eyed silhouette. The last remaining strands of hair on top of his head wiggle in the breeze. He looks like Homer Simpson, I think. What? He asks, with somewhat of a stern look on his face. His hands are red from work. Oh, Lord, had I just said that out loud? Oh, nothing. I'm sure glad you stopped. I thought I was going to die. I answered, pulling at the life jacket collar. It keeps creeping up higher and higher around my neck and is strangling me. The sides are tightening like a boa constrictor, squeezing me, limiting the amount of precious breath I long for. I need to get this life jacket off. It's killing me. My son is facing the rear of the vessel, his butt atop folded legs which are tucked under him as if an egg was being hatched by a brooding hen. His back is to the control panel and steering wheel. His face lights up as I draw near. Hey, Mom, was it fun? You looked awesome out there, he says, bouncing with excitement. Can I go again? he begs. There is a part of me that feels it has all been worth it to see him so happy. What would he have thought if I had drowned? 
Would he have been traumatized for the rest of his life? I am now trying to move my arms up and down, but the energy is gone. Jello would be stronger. I look at the ladder leading up from the wake. It is only four rungs, but they seem insurmountable. I lay my head back on the rubber ring and stare up at the sky. A large speck circles above, slowly gliding in the air. The hawk's wings splay out on either side, dipping and flapping in a controlled dance against an orange-kissed heaven. Not long ago that sky was powder blue, and soon it will give way to darkness. Where has the time gone? The boat looms over me now. My feet bump up against the hull with a lazy up-and-down motion. Jim, my father-in-law, stands above me, rope in hand. A wicked smile slides across his face. Without a word, he yanks the line with both fists, high over his head. The rope tightens and snaps the tube forward and up. I pinwheel backward, my knees come, over my head, somersaulting me in reverse. My head dips back and under the water I go. My butt pokes out of the surface momentarily, causing me to look like a mallard diving for a fish. The life jacket does its duty and uprights me. However, I am bobbing slightly under the water. I will my hands to grab for the boat. Fingernails digging frantically at the smooth wall in front of me. But my mind can't overcome their weakness. It is as if they are bent on protesting against me saving myself. Why did I ever get into that tube? I'm too fat. I should never have listened to Jim. This life jacket is not keeping me up. How am I going to pull myself up into the boat? The water rushes in as if it owns me. It is cold and saps the little energy I have left. I open my mouth to yell, but nothing comes out. I feel my eyes bulging from their sockets. My face contorts into a grimace of horror and panic. My heart thuds to life, screaming in its cage. My sister-in-law realizes I am in trouble and runs to the side of the boat. She needs help, my sister-in-law yells as she climbs to where I am. I kick my legs, but it does little to propel me. My arms spasm around in small circles at my sides, in an odd dog paddle movement. Get the net, Jim screams, pointing to the other side of the boat. My son leaps from his perch, grabs the fishing net, hands it to his grandfather, and scampers back over the back bench to peer down at me. Having all three of them standing on the same side causes the boat to lean, dipping down towards the water. This movement lands the bottom of the boat onto my head, pushing me under the surface. On TV, when you see a person drowning, it's a scene of splashing, thrashing, and the dreaded bobbing up for gulps of air, only to sink again. This is not how it is for me. It is smooth, subtle, and silent. I can see the panic in the boat. I can see the mime's movements, thrusting the net towards me, mouths moving, 
but I hear nothing. I've held my breath underwater before. This is different. This is like having a bomb strapped to my chest and being told not to let my heart beat. It will beat. And just as the heart beats, the lungs will inhale either air or murky water. At that moment, the cold rushes in. A fire erupts as the bronchial tubes flood and pressure explodes upwards like a firecracker into my nasal cavity, pushing my eyes forward from their housing. I open my mouth again in a silent scream, letting out a string of bubbles. I feel them brush against my cheek. My eyes follow them as they race towards the surface. The sun that was so bright a second ago now looks distant and just a blur. I allow the water to hold me in a suspended position beneath the boat. I can no longer feel my body and I wait in resignation for the cruel hands of death to suck away every tiny scrap of life I have left. Darkness folds in around me, and I am in pure, total, oppressive gloom. Then the cold is gone, and I am wrapped in a warmness that radiates around me, like a heated blanket out of a hot dryer on a cold winter's day. Did I pee in the pool? I find myself three feet below my body. It's floating there like a pogo stick bobbing under the boat. The people still animated above, but my body is still. Corpse vertical with its arms drifting out to the side, giving the appearance of a crucifixion. The hair is stringy and drifting up like wisps of spider webs in the current. The eyes are open, mouth with a slack jaw a purple tongue hiding behind crooked teeth. I have no sadness or connection to this body. I am dead. Energy hooks me at my midsection, yanking me backward, smashing my face into my knees. I am out of the water, rushing back as if caught in a vast vacuum. I am dead, and I'm going to heaven ass first.